to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Becca. Um, I want to meet you, so but I also like run around like crazy sometimes on Thursday nights. So come up and introduce yourself to me if I don't have a chance to meet you, and I would love to, to meet you and get to know you. Um, I work here at the BSN. I am a coordinator here. I just help with different ministry things. Um, I help a little bit with the band and AV team and our small groups. And um, every once in a while, I get to um, do this and teach and like really jump in deep to a passage of God's Word that we're studying. So I'm excited to um, get to do that with y'all tonight and um, in our connect groups even more. So um, yeah, this semester has been kind of crazy with the snow weeks. Um, we're studying through the book of James. We've actually only studied uh, eight verses of it so far, and we're almost to spring break, so we, we got some catch-up to do. Um, but honestly, it'll be great. We'll jump in um, tonight, and then we'll kind of continue just throughout smaller chunks of James and still make it to the end by the end of the semester. So um, we are going to be in James um, chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. And actually, one thing I didn't check is the page number in, oh, maybe we don't have the Bibles out. A lot of times we'll have Bibles sitting out, and we'll have a page number up on the screen for you. Um, so you can keep an eye out for the that in the future. But for now, if you um, want to just pull it up on your phone or if you have a Bible with you, you can do that. If not, I'm going to be reading the sections of Scripture that we'll be going over. Um, So uh, let's see. A few things contextually, just because it's been a little bit since we've been here in James, um, that we'll want to keep in mind tonight as we get further into chapter one, um, are the nature of the book of James, um, and then the audience, and then the content. So the nature of the book Um, This book is seen as wisdom literature. It's oftentimes called the wisdom literature of the New Testament. And um, it has strong roots in Jesus' teachings. So saying it's wisdom literature just means that this book is really providing like practical advice for those who have been saved by Jesus and for them like learning how to live lives that are honoring to him. Um, The audience of the book James is writing to Christians who have been persecuted and are thus dispersed among countries and cities that are not their home. And then the content of this book, um, it has really strong themes about how to live obedient lives to God. Much of it focuses on living an authentic Christian life. Um, and this really finds its roots in Jesus' commands from Matthew 22, 37 through 40, um, saying that we should love God and then love others. Um, So if you were here the first time that we were talking about James, um, Dr. Taylor was here, and he taught like a whole overview, and he talked about the double love command. That was a big thing. So we want to keep that in mind as we are jumping into different passages um, more in depth. Um, So the first chapter of James functions as an introduction to the rest of the book. So as we wade through more, um, know that a lot of what we cover now will actually be fleshed out even further in following weeks. Um, So what do we see in the whole first section of chapter 1 that we covered a few weeks ago? We've learned so far that we can have joy in trials, and we can have wisdom in trials. And how is this possible? Elizabeth Thompson taught it wonderfully a few weeks ago. 
She said that there is surely joy that can be had in the midst of suffering because of our relationship with God. We have hope that God uses difficult situations to grow us in faith and trust in God. And God gives wisdom generously. Wisdom is not something that we just automatically have when we're born. We don't like pop out like little Einsteins. That's not how it works. Um, We have to learn it over time. It's something that is taught. And so going through trials, we learned in the first few verses, teaches us wisdom. It teaches us about life and how we are to navigate through it. But that's not all. Trials teach us wisdom, and that wisdom is a great benefit to the believer. It's not just something like, okay, I got wisdom. Um, It's helpful to us in our lives. Um, So how is that? In the first part of chapter 1, James says we can have joy because through trials we gain wisdom. And then in this second part of chapter 1 that we're going to be in today, he explains that wisdom helps us let go of things that will fade and helps us to hold fast to what will last forever. So if you're taking notes, that's generally what we'll be talking about. This wisdom that we get through trials helps us let go of things that will fade and hold fast to what will last forever. That's what we're going to look at in our passage today. Um, And we'll read it in chunks. So let's start out with looking at verses 9 through 11. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So this mentions two types of people, the lowly and then the rich. And there are a few times in the book of James where the poor and the rich are mentioned um, in contrast. And later in the book, it's pretty clear that um, there's a separate group of rich people that is used in this contrast, and those are not believers. Um, But here in chapter 1, he's talking about rich believers and poor believers, rich rich Christians and poor Christians. Um, So... Knowing that they come from the same theological framework, both groups are Christians, we need to ask, why is there such a contrast in what they're being told to do? Why would the lowly person be exalted? Why would the rich person be humiliated? When James addresses the poor believer, he tells them to boast. He encourages them to not find their worth in what they own, because ultimately money will fade. And James also instructs the rich believer, warning them to not base their worth in their financial situation. Um, Do you guys know Ben Stewart? Have you heard of him? He's um, a Bible teacher. He pastors a church um, in D.C. Thank you. Um, In D.C. So Ben Stewart has used this illustration in the past in talking about this kind of idea. He says, um, some of us have learned this lesson in high school. So much of your identity in high school can be built up on what your reputation is and your friends and um, the groups that you're in, the things that you're a part of. And he says, then we stand on the mountaintops of our successes, wearing our letter jackets, and we envision ourselves walking onto our college campuses, declaring to the world, I have arrived, I'm here with my letter jacket. But then you get to college with that same letter jacket, and, you know, that's not realistic. Nobody really cares about the patches, um, or your previous accomplishments. Um, And he goes on to say that, of course, it's not wrong to enjoy your high school years, but if you've been feeling really down since high school graduation, then you may have done more than just enjoy high school. You may have made it your sense of worth. 
And so we can do this with other things as well, if we're not careful. Um, our image, our relationships, our grades, the amount of likes or views that we get on social media. Um, we can easily make these things into what gives us worth, but they will fade away. So with the social media example, even if you became famous, and Twitter was the best thing I could measure this with, um, can you guess how many trending topics there are in one day? Do you have a guess? Okay, 100. That's actually low. How many? 100. Higher than that. Uh, well, not that many. <laughs> so my, my, I don't use Twitter a whole lot. I haven't. I don't use it a whole lot. My guess was 500 trending topics, and that was actually low, too. Um, there are nearly 9,000 topics that trend on Twitter daily, and most have a shelf life of less than 10 minutes. So talk about something fading. Like, you're in and you're, like, it's gone. Um, so James is saying that, and that's just an example, but James is saying that things of this world fade away. So then why would we want to find our worth there? Um, like the less than 10 minute shelf life of a trending topic on Twitter, our money and also fame and grades and success will be gone and forgotten in a matter of minutes sometimes. Um, some of you might just be really introspective and know things about yourself, you know, like this. Um, but if you're someone more like me who needs to take a few minutes and process um, where you might place your sense of worth, then here's some helpful questions that you could process through. I think it's really helpful um, to consider what your thoughts normally gravitate towards. Where do your affections lie is a question that you can ask. What takes up your time? Um, and the answers to these questions are really good places to start. It doesn't always mean that these things are bad, um, like with the letter jacket example. But when those things become what you worship instead of God, then that's where we need to watch out. Um, so the type of boasting that James is talking about does not come from things that fade. How could it? James is pointing the believer to something beyond this life. So if you notice, I'm saying that humility is a part of James' instruction to both believers, the rich and the poor. Which is funny because James is saying that no matter their financial state, they should boast in something. So does humility really fit with boasting? Yes, there is a category for that in scripture. And it's opposite of what you might hear in the prosperity gospel or word of faith movements. Um, it's not about boasting in what God has given you, but instead in boasting about what God has done. I'm gonna set this up here. So in verse 12, um, we see that trials, in trials, we gain wisdom that helps us hold on tight to what will last forever. So let's read uh, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So verse 12 is very similar to verse 2 in chapter 1, if you go and look back and compare. They both mention trials and tests, as well as remaining steadfast. However, here in verse 12, James points out that there's a reward that is promised for those who remain steadfast. He says that they'll receive the crown of life. So let's spend a little bit of time looking around the Bible for more mentions of this idea of the crown of life, so we can understand what it means. 
And you don't have to flip there, but you can jot these down. If you're taking notes, I'll read them to you, and we'll talk about them. Um, the first place we could look is 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 25. And it says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And so this is describing a laurel wreath that ancient Greeks gave to people who excelled in their area of expertise. A lot of times um, they give them to Olympians for like winning really great feats of strength or races or competitions. Um, and it would symbolize glory um, and victory for the one who had attained it. And the second verse you can jot down is 2 Timothy 4.8. And it says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So mentioning this crown, again, as we see here when Paul writes to Timothy, would call the believer to look from their present trials and to their future inheritance. James is teaching that even in suffering, like these trials, life is promised for those who love God. Even when our bodies are wasting away and we endure pain or heartbreak, those who are in Christ will one day receive the crown of life, life eternal. For us on that day forward, there will be no more death, or pain, or tears. And the absence of these things won't even be the greatest thing. I think that's crazy. As wonderful as the absence of these things, of death and pain and tears, will be, not one bit of that will compare to the joy that we will get to experience when we get to be in the presence of our God and Savior forever. So as we move to the next few verses of James, you might notice that James is quick to point out as we go through these trials, there's often temptation that comes along with it. So let's read verses 13 through 15. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God does bring about trials in our lives. But what does the Bible say is the cause of temptation? James says it is not God. But in verse 14 and 15, he says, the cause of temptation is our desires. So let's do a little case study about this. There are many places in Scripture um, where we can read stories where people are tempted to sin. But two bigger instances that really stand out to me are Adam and Eve in the garden and then the people of Israel in the wilderness. So think back, if you will, to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis where God had created everything and he placed Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden. They had everything that they needed and God told them to not eat from this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God, uh, actually the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented a test for Adam and Eve. So Satan came and questioned what God had said to them, and they gave into temptation and sinned in the garden. And Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
So remember how it says the fruit was a delight to the eyes. Sin is enticing. So we can see that Eve desired the fruit, though she truly knew the words that God had spoken. Instead of obeying their Lord, Adam and Eve worshipped their own desires, and giving into temptation, they sinned. So let's look at the example of the Israelites. This um, falls around the time of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, where we see the Israelites as one huge group of people being led by Moses out of Egypt into the land that God had promised them. During their journey, they had a history of grumbling. Throughout their time in the desert, they constantly questioned and said, if only we were back in Egypt instead of here in the wilderness. And Egypt was the land where they were being oppressed and enslaved. God had given them commands in his law that were meant to differentiate them from the nations and set them apart as his own people. They were meant to be representatives of his character and instruments of his justice. And we could read in the book of Numbers, when they made it to the promised land, they took one look at it and its inhabitants and they failed to trust God again. They cried, if only we had died in Egypt or even just on the way here. They knew God's words. He had said that he would give them this land and they knew his character. He was faithful to his promises in great acts to deliver them and care for them. Yet they again did not trust God to fulfill his promises. They chose to rebel. Instead of obeying the Lord, they wanted to follow their own desires, and giving in to temptation, they sinned. God told them that they must spend more time in the wilderness before they would be able to enter into the promised land. How do we know that Israel's time in the desert was a time of testing? Deuteronomy 8.2 mentions the Israelites as they're finally able to go into their land after the time that they had to wander in the desert. God says to them, actually Moses says to them, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So when I share these two instances from scripture of how people gave into temptation, what do we see? These people, they knew God's character and God's commands, but during trials, their own desires were what led them to sin. And this is really something for us to think about. If you're a Christian, in trials and in temptation, how do you respond? How do I respond? It's a question for me to ask myself too. It could be really easy to isolate yourself, um, but what we miss if we do that in trials and testing is the blessing that God has given us and other Christian brothers and sisters to walk through life with. It's good for us to have a few close friends um, as we, and we can confess sin with them and encourage one another to put sin to death, um, helping each other remember God's character and his commands that are for our good. And it could also be really easy in trials to shift the blame for temptation or sin to something else, whether it's blaming God, like James mentions, um, or even blaming others or the circumstances um, that we're in for temptation or sin. An example of this would be saying, um, you've been really annoying to me all day, so that's why I raised my voice at you and said that thing that was really hurtful. Or... Um, another example could be, I have slept horribly the past two days. That's why I was so passive-aggressive to my roommates today. We need to call sin, sin. 
all of those circumstances could very well be opportunities for greater temptation. It definitely is easier to act out in anger when someone has been pushing your buttons all day or when you haven't gotten enough sleep. However, none of those circumstances are what made us sin. It's always us and our own desires that actually cause us to sin. And the Bible is pretty clear on this here in James as well as in several other places in Scripture. So let me be clear on this topic specifically. James is not saying that temptation is sin. This is important because I think sometimes we carry around a lot of guilt because of the temptations that we face. But we need to remember that God isn't looking down and shaking his finger at us because of temptation. Instead, James is saying that temptation leads to sin. This means that when we're being tempted, possibly lured towards sin because of our desires, we should be honest about that with others. Like I said before, it's so good to have close friends um, who you can encourage and pray for as we fight sin. It's not something that we can do on our own. Um, And it takes relying on the Spirit of God to help us fight that. So James is saying here that when we give in to temptation, um, we sin. And that's what he means by saying our desires give birth to sin. Sin comes from inside our hearts. And this is one of the instances where James is writing very clearly aligns with some of Jesus' teachings. In the Gospels, Jesus teaches clearly that the heart is sinful, not just the actions. He teaches that anger towards another is the same as murder, that lust is the same as adultery. And why are these things the same? Why is he saying that? because they both come from the same place. It all originates in our hearts, and our actions flow from that. Our hearts are sinful. Um, But James says, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, and that is not just a physical death. Jesus speaks of this death in Matthew 25, 46, as eternal punishment. So how could we ever break our course towards this punishment for sin if our nature's truly that sinful. If our very desires lead to sin, and sin leads to death. We can cry out with Paul in Romans 7, saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But he continues saying, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The good news is this. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, came down and was born here on earth. The unlimited, all-powerful God came and lived a life as a limited human being who needed sleep in order to have energy for the next day. And Jesus was tempted. A specific instance is when he was tempted in the wilderness. During these trials, he did not give in to temptation. His desire was to obey God and follow his commands. And though he was tempted in every way, he lived a perfect life, completely void of sin. And then he died the death of a sinner. And not because this death was what he had earned, he lived a perfect life, but because he wanted to take our punishment, because he loves you. He cares deeply for you and died an excruciating death, taking on God's wrath against sin so that the same punishment wouldn't be yours. And all we as sinners need to do is repent of our sin and believe this good news. We must turn and follow Christ. And when we do this, Christ's perfect work is credited to our account, and his death is in the place of our death. 
We are completely united to him so that when God looks at us, he sees us enrobed in Christ's righteousness. And then in Jesus' coming back to life and his ascension into heaven, we then, because we're united with Christ, have assurance that we will have eternal life and get to spend eternity with God. And that's what we call the gospel or the good news. So when we face trials, we can hold on tight to what we know about the gospel, that if you are in Christ, this is yours. And knowing this in the midst of suffering and fighting sin helps us endure and fight well. And if you're not a Christian and you're hearing this, know that you too can have this type of relationship with God. You know, I've been saying it's nothing we can do, but it's everything that God has done. And that applies to you as well. You don't have to get your stuff together. You don't have to be able to answer every question. All you need to do is recognize that you are in fact a sinner, like we all are saying, and believe that Jesus came and died to take away the punishment for your sin. You too can have this as your story. The Son of God came and lived the life that you couldn't live and died in your place so that you could have a right relationship with God. So when we ask the question, what are we to do when we face trials? We've seen throughout chapter 1 that James says we can have joy because through trials we gain wisdom to let go of the things that will fade and hold fast to what will last forever. And that leads us to the last little bit of our passage. Um, We can only do this because we know our God and we know his love for us. So in verse 16, James encourages them not to be deceived. This serves as as a transition from the last section to this one. They should remember that God does not tempt in trials because God is good. And here is more about God's goodness. Let's read this last section. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Verse 17 uses imagery to explain something beautiful about our God. James calls him the Father of lights. He has created the sun and the moon and the stars, and the creator of these immaculate things doesn't shift like a shadow caused by the sun. Instead, he has no variation or change. And something else to notice is that James previously stated that our desires tempt and lead to sin and death, but what is the contrast we see here in these verses? God's desires are stated in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth. So verse 18, if you're a Christian, is talking about one of the greatest gifts you've ever been given. The term brought us forth is birthing imagery. And what did God bring forth? Us. What does James say about those who have been born again? There are three things that we can look at from verse 18 about this. First, it is of God's own will that we are brought forth or born again. It is motivated by the sovereign will of God. And what encouragement is it that it's by God's will? Philippians 1 says that God who began a good work in us will bring it on to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. So if it's by God's will that we have been brought forth or born again, then it is by God's will that he will bring us through it all to the end. Second, God accomplishes this rebirth through the word of truth or the gospel. It is not because of anything that we do that makes us born again. 
We did not earn this on our own merit. And third, those that are born again are the first fruits of his creatures. Our spiritual birth isn't to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to God. The term first fruits is used um, for the first crops that farmers would gather, or maybe still gather, from their harvests. Um, these first fruits are a foretaste and a sign of the full harvest that is to come. And so in Revelation 21, God says, Behold, I am making all things new. But that starts with us, believers. We who have been born again are just the first taste of all that he is making new. So we can hold tight to the hope now that God is working in us and to the hope that God will one day make all things new. So if we were to ask, what are we to do when we face trials? James chapter 1 answers, we can have joy because through trials we gain wisdom to let go of things that will fade and hold fast to what will last forever. And since we've talked about application a little bit throughout, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us now and then we'll get to discuss more in our connect groups. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to come here and to read it together and study it together and discuss it together. I thank you for the love of Christ and that um, because of the good news of his life and his death and his resurrection and that we can have a right relationship with you. And would you help us to um, enjoy the time that we have in connect groups together, getting to discuss this more? And would you help it to be a sweet time for encouragement um, and just for thinking deeper about trials and, and testing and temptation? Um, thanks for tonight. Um, and we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.